Le matin, je me lève en rose du jour château de la belle pour les faire l'amour. Belle dormez-vous sur maille, vous chalonnera. Si vous dormez, réveillez-vous, c'est votre main qui parle à vous. Bonjour, and welcome back to Franco-American Pathways. I'm Julia Rhinelander. This month, we're bringing you the second half of our Mapping Franco-Biddeford episode. If you didn't listen to part one, we highly recommend going back and giving it a listen. Part two will make a whole lot more sense. Last fall, a few days after our Osher visit, Emma Boutillette, Biddeford native and author, met the Franco-American Pathways team and Libby Bischoff to take a historic walking tour of Biddeford. We made connections to the maps and documents we'd viewed just a few days earlier. Our visit concluded with a stop at the MacArthur Library, where Renee Burkett and her team in Special Collections gave us a tour of their space and their extensive collection of artifacts relating to Franco Biddeford. Merci et très bonne écoute. I was thinking of the maps when I drove in from Saco to Biddeford, too. I'm like, oh, this makes so much more sense after I looked at a map of this for right, a half exactly. an hour yeah. the <laughs> other day. Um, yeah, so we can head up Center Street, and that'll take us to the church, and then we'll work our way back down. Great. We met Emma and Libby at Elements, a bookstore and coffee shop on Main Street in Biddeford. It was mid-October and still pretty early in the morning, so the air was crisp and the sun was shining. A perfect Maine fall day. Once we convened at Elements, we started our walking journey, heading up Center Street towards Elm, coffee in hand. Um, so when I was listening to the Lewiston episode, Mapping Lewiston, it was interesting to hear there was a very grid system to the streets. Yes. Uh, because Biddeford did not do that. No, Biddeford <laughs> clearly did not do that. Did not do that. But then when I was looking at a map, I was like, this street cuts right through and drops you down at the church. So it made kind of a shortcut for people. Ah. Uh, and thinking about where the churches versus where the parochial schools were, it seems like it's a long distance, but it's not really. Um, I think they were just placed there based on what was available for land uh, because when they were building these properties the city was already starting to build up and grow um, beyond what was available to have like a campus so there are two churches within our sight line are they both catholic that one is not catholic is it episcopal That's the um Unitarian church. Unitarian. I was say congregational. Yeah. Or, no, I'm sorry. That's the second congregational church. You're right. Oh, am I? Yeah, there are, there are many churches in Biddeford. Um, not, not many that are still in use on a regular basis. Um, that building definitely serves a community purpose, though, because there's um, a soup kitchen and location for AA meetings that people s- attend and different community events that um, kind of take up take up space in that building which would otherwise be mostly unused and coming back to this <laughs> grid no grid observation Um, what, and I guess maybe Libby, you can weigh in on this too. So everything is a little bit more pell-mell. It's a little little more, you know, if if Lewiston was the equivalent of like a Manhattan grid, 
this is a little more like Boston <laughs> with like things kind of built on on uh, less than 90 degree angles and some one ways um, is there any particular reason for for that that we can think of or is it just like you said kind of um, less um, or different way of conceiving of the mills and how people lived around them you said that there's I mean this street like this street that goes up to the church here and which church is this this is um, St. Joseph's St. So Joseph's the only active year-round Catholic church okay. still in use okay. here in Biddeford and it was the first church um, I believe 1888 was when it was officially dedicated in notes for myself so I got the years correct. Um, yeah, so 1870, they started, they founded the church, started to build this structure, and it was dedicated in 1883. Um, and by 1870, there was a large enough influx of French Catholic people to fill this church. Um, it's a sizable church. It's a sizable yeah, church. Yeah, this is not a small... This is a it, cathedral. It, I mean, it, it really is. Yeah, it's a cathedral-style church. There's a center aisle with two rows of pews on either side, and then um, side aisles as well, and then a smaller row of pews on the outer edges. There's also, um, like, function hall space in the basement, and... Then this building behind us used to be part of the parish as well. Oh, it looks like the rectory. This was the rectory. Yeah. Yes. So this is just across Elm Street and kind of sitting up on the hill. Very prominent uh, wraparound porch. And it's been purchased and, and restored to an extent. Um, but a real beautiful building when you also kind of take a look at what else is around here structurally. Um, clearly a prominent, prominent property. And we can also see up Green Street, um, St. James School Hall, which is another uh, church property. And that's just a hall building um, with a stage in the back. I had a few performances there. Uh, meatball, spaghetti and meatball supper. <laughs> um, and that wouldn't have been uncommon. I mean, no. the church bought as much land as it possibly yep. could. Exactly, exactly. So, and you can kind of see there's like a diagonal path to the hall. And then if we, if we would follow up that street, it brings you to what is now St. James, which used to be St. Louis. Um, which was the parochial school for boys and beyond that which has now been converted to um, apartment buildings was the parochial school for girls and we were looking at those on the map the other day yes exactly exactly and around the same time they were yeah. there by kind of the 1870s yeah. 1880s and when my mom was in school there um, the nuns called her mom in because she was making love in the schoolyard um, <laughs> at age you know eight or whatever she was holding a boy's hand but that's what they called it. But that's what they called it. And my grandmother, <laughs> who is still alive, bless her heart, uh, very sassy to an extent, said, I think I need to explain something to you, sister. <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, nuns were teaching the Franco youth of Biddeford for quite some time. And, and I think you'd venture to poll anyone who's about my parents' generation and they have a healthy fear of nuns for that reason. We talked quite a bit about the parochial schools at the summit this past weekend mm -hmm. um, and how this that aspect of schooling was such a big part of the Franco experience um, in the early 20th century and or even mid-20th century um, and that to the extent that they were, there was like a call out to priests and, and nuns in Quebec to come down and to as French speakers to come down and that's and where and that's where the nuns from in Biddeford came from right, I mean exactly. they were at the we saw a big convent on the map and yeah. I think they were sisters of mercy from yeah. Quebec 
And some, I believe I mentioned many of them, or not all of them that were originally, but you know what I mean. There, <laughs> there's still a nunnery in Biddeford Pool that is home to the Catholic sect of nuns. Um, and, and, that many of them are, sum, and that would have been a summer place because they yes. were... The Catholic Church also bought a lot of summer property. Summer property. And that is another huge building. Um, so we can, if we want to, I don't know if we want to... It's hard to ignore the fact that churches, these massive steepled structures, are the literal pillars of the communities where they stand. I always find myself looking out my driver's seat window when I cross the Androscoggin River, heading north on 95, to catch a glimpse of the distinct silhouette of the Cathedral of St. Peter and St. Paul. It's the landmark that tells me I'm headed to Lewis and Auburn. No need for highway signs. It dominates the landscape. Stories like the ones Emma tells about her family's relationship to the church also remind us of their cultural and communal significance in towns like Biddeford. One thing that was definitely a concern as well as the properties were being built up was just the uh, risk of fires downtown. And um, this Fenston property that we're walking past on Center Street was actually previously a building that burnt down um, and I was working as a reporter at the time uh, and there was a huge concern about it spreading house to house and that is still a concern for the city's fire department because the properties are so close together. I suppose that might be another function of the um non-linear city map. For sure, for sure. And um, from, I was thinking about my property that I owned a duplex over on George Street, which would have been, it was built around the turn of the century. And the like property lines are weird too. They're not squares or rectangles. Um, The street I live on now, all of the property lines are perfect rectangles. So it's like they learned something <laughs> eventually, uh, but it took a bit. And Saco and Biddeford were villages prior to the mills. So the street patterns may have much more to do with the colonial settlements than they do with the actual industrialization. So it would be important to look at that. It's not like Saco and Biddeford didn't exist before the mills came, because they certainly did. Saco was an incredibly early colonial settlement. 200 years before the mills arrived. And and at that time that this was settled as a colonial settlement, Lewiston and Auburn would not have been nearly no. as built nope, up. No, not in the same way. Yeah. Okay. At this point in the walk, we were headed back towards Main Street. It's funny what happens on these urban hikes. As your eyes get keener, as they search for historical clues and tidbits, you start to notice things your eyes might sort of gloss over on any other day. So take, for example, those signs that hang from street lamps. A lot of the ones in Portland these days have bold, eye-catching colors and say things like stay the course or advertise information on preventing the spread of COVID-19. The ones in Biddeford on the day of our walk featured prominent figures in Biddeford's history, including someone anyone familiar with Franco-American history in Maine would recognize. Hey, look. Disturbing. We are, there is a banner with the Biddeford 2020 Hall of Fame with Israel Chavanel, pioneer, builder, Franco-American. So tell us about Israel Chavanel. So Israel walked from Canada, we believe at the age of 19, which was probably around 1845. Um, He came down in the summer to um, find work, see if there was work available for him. And he discovered abundant commerce happening downtown, worked for a season, went home, and um, convinced his family to come back with him the following year. And it was, um, you know, seasonal work for quite some time, and a trickle of French Canadians who moved down to the area permanently. Um, But unlike the Mill Girls, who would come and stay in boarding houses as the Canadians came and and moved permanently to Biddeford. That's where you see the building up of properties. And as I was saying, as I was saying at the um, maps room, they weren't just building houses, they were building multifamily units. And 
the entire extended family was living in those in those units. Um, the duplex that I owned that I mentioned was built in the early 1900s was owned by a woman whose brother also owned the four unit building across the street. And so just that was their family. Um, and at the time when I purchased the building, they were renting the other units out to non-family members because that's what they had to do to maintain the property. Um, but that was like the whole extended family living right across the street from each other. Um, Which you can track, right, in census records and yeah. then also in city directories. Which are just great sources our for this work. Friends. Which I'm, our old friends, our which old I'm friends. sure there's plenty at the MacArthur Library oh, for too. For sure, for sure. Uh, Renee has a wealth of resources there. Ask her about those. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they they recently added these banners to recognize um, Hall of Fame inductees, which is kind of a nice nod to Bedford's heritage. Although off the record you think they would place it by the park named for him but <laughs> what do i know <laughs> yeah maybe there's maybe there's some method that we just don't know right there's a method to the madness I've, I've tried to figure out what the method is but i don't i i can't decide because because they have like modern interspersed with like right older. exactly exactly so it's not chronological i'm waiting for my nomination yes Maybe, maybe after they hear you on the podcast. Maybe that's that's what it's going to take. They'll say, "Oh." So will we stop here, or will we stop on the corner? One of the most striking landmarks in Biddeford, aside from the mill, of course, is the Biddeford City Theater, a building that also has strong affiliations with the Franco presence in the city. Salle de l'Opéra is written in big letters on the marquee. The performing arts have a strong presence in the city. And Anna, our multi-talented archivist, happened to be working on the tech crew for a production of Ghost Train last fall. So she knows the building well. Also, the show was excellent. If you've never had the chance to see a play there, I highly recommend it. And this would get people on their way home. So we're standing in front of or the city theater, and you're literally in sight of all the mills. Yep, exactly. So as you're walking home from work, if you were going to go get some entertainment and leisure, and I also noticed that the sign is not just in English, but it's also in French. Salle de l'Opera. So it's interesting to see that they chose to keep that. And the city theater has been a source of entertainment for since as long as the mill buildings have been here. Um, the mosaic in front of the door says Opera House as well. That was original. Um, the theater has since been given some love, seats updated, um, but this was a source for this was a source for entertainment. There was also a Nickelodeon um, Nickelodeon movie theater as well when movies became a more popular thing to view. And that's what that's what Franco's did on their free time. Which just thinking of looking out the windows of this mill building to the marquee and dreaming of being done with work. <laughs> <laughs> but as we learned with the ten plus hour workday, you probably didn't have much time for fun. Which is probably why the Franco heritage continues to just work themselves to the bone. But that's a that's a story for the labor movement podcast. <laughs> So I'm a public historian, and I'm always noticing signs and plaques in the streets. So Biddeford, like many other cities in Maine, has a wonderful museum in the streets. And we are standing in front of the kind of central map plaque for that. And the first thing I noticed is that it's a bilingual sign in both English and French, not just the narrative at the bottom, but also underneath every building. Um, so I think... What's interesting, in a way I didn't see in Lewiston in the same way, though I know it is in different places, I'm seeing so much French that's still here publicly, um, on signs, out in the open, um, which is pride of place, I think, very much, and also tells me that there must be people involved in this work, uh, in preserving this history from the Franco community that ensure that this happens. And the museum in the street, also, there's a Saco edition. Um, these signs have been in place for, I want to say, at least 20 years. 
That's my grandfather's go-to timeline for things. Um, but it honors the historic properties in the city. Um, and we're standing in front of like the primary sign that shows you all 20 spots um, with dots on the map to where they're located. And then we can see um, number 11 right next to it that has uh, more detail, I think probably about City Hall. It's quite the rabbit hole to go down thinking about the ways we memorialize things and why we memorialize them in the first place. These Museum in the Streets plaques in Biddeford were prominently placed and engaging with text in both French and English, a nod to the cultural and linguistic history of the city. Amidst the hustle and bustle, you get these little moments to pause and reflect. Almost didn't have anything like this. I mean, I, this is so cool that there's QR codes that'll take you right to the site on the... Historical society, we we do have museum in the streets do, okay. downtown. I have to check about QR codes. Right. Well, okay. Yeah. Not but that the, specifically, the, but the museum in the streets thing. I just had yes. no idea that that existed. Does Portland have it, Libby? Portland has a lot of other markers, okay. not museum in the streets in the same way. Uh, the towns that tended to do museum in the streets did them around the same time, 20 years ago or so. It was popular in smaller places in smaller cities. A lot I didn't of know about the movement. Okay, so it was a, a movement in smaller towns and just yeah, in Maine. I mean, it's, a, it's a no, not just in Maine. They yeah. exist all over. There, it's just sort of a movement for public history in a way of telling the narratives of a place in a place. There were grants that people could apply for, and people in the town who were willing. You know, it's often a partnership between historical societies, libraries, civic groups, and it needs like anything else. People who are interested, people who still know the history and can present it in a way that the casual passerby will stop and understand. In French and in English. Yeah, and that's what I'd be interested to see in Lewiston. Maureen's going to check to see if the ones there are also bilingual. Uh, Renee might be able to answer this. I, I believe that these were done in partnership between MacArthur and the Dyer Library in Saco. That makes a lot of sense. Because um, they share a lot of the archive resources. So, since we talked about Israel, we don't really need to go to this park that's named for him, because we got that. But what I'd like to do is we'll go down that little side street and walk our way to the falls. Sounds good. What I love about Main Street Biddeford is the beautiful sunrise that comes basically straight up the street. It's just a beautiful morning. Absolutely. My... My hands are kind of cold, so I'm appreciating the sun. You want some gloves? Yeah. The murals, Oliver Bitterford, and I, you might have mentioned this before, but I just don't remember. Were these commissioned by someone? Because they're all over, and they're not that there's any particular uniformity, but um, it, it seems like this is kind of a part of the revitalization. Yeah, the murals are definitely part of a revitalization of the city. Um, this one in particular, there's actually a sister painting to it, and I can't recall where that sister painting lives in the world, but I believe that it's maybe in the Middle East somewhere. Oh, wow. Um, and it's a, if I recall correctly, it's a little girl on the phone. So, like, they're talking to each other. And the artist that did this, um, also had some people contributing, so you can kind of see like some of the graffiti stuff is like what it's Arabic. Yes. Yep. And I'm noticing too, it's you have to look at it, but there's chain link fence and barbed wire that's been peeled, peeled apart, apart that mm-hmm. the little boy is looking through. Yep. I'll add a photo to this. I'm I'm just that's the, one of the bigger ones. Yeah, and the. Um, I believe the murals, there's one up on the Elements Building, there's one on the side of New Morning, Nat- New Morning Natural Foods as well. It's just been a push to bring art to the downtown um, and make that art public mm-hmm. in a way that's accessible to everybody, Yeah. Um, but also a way of beautifying the city. They're pretty incredible. Big, big, big canvases. Canvases, yeah. yeah. And before we keep moving, um, the house or the building we're standing right in front of is the counting house and um, the thing that Pepperell Mill Campus has done in redeveloping all of the Pepperell Mill or Pepperell Manufacturing Company buildings is keep the logo that was created by um, 
Samuel Batchelder and his leadership crew when they founded the manufacturing company. Um, and that, I, I know I mentioned that when we got together on Friday, that was from of Men and Times, which was published by the manufacturing company as a way of recording their history. Um, and that's something available at MacArthur Library as well. well. And the counting house, so that would have been where they counted money, I'm assuming? Yeah, their, their accounting property. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it also, growing up, for me, uh, when there were still some manufacture, there was still some manufacturing happening, uh, my mom and I would come here and you could buy sheets and towels and... Um, fabric by the pound so I remember coming here their outlet sort of yeah when did that stop being a thing Uh, I was probably it's probably around 2004 2005 uh sorry I think it I think it closed before West Point finally closed which was 2009 so um I I used to do a lot of quilting and it would be the perfect place to find the large quilt backing Something on my want to learn list is to quilt. And so, um, the perhaps you guys already talked about this when I wasn't there on Friday, so forgive me. But um, is the the sigil for the Pepperell Mill is it a griffin? So it's designed somewhat to represent the Chinese dragon. Um, yeah, because they marketed and sold the sheeting to Asia. Um, so they wanted to create a logo that would appeal to their market. Um, so it, it looks, this, this is definitely an evolved version, modernized version, but the original one looks very much like Chinese dragon lion combo. Um, yeah. And so right now we're walking down one of the side streets that is behind Main Street and flanked by mill buildings that have been repurposed. And um, the building in front of us and beside us is all commerce, so not residential yet. Um, this building houses a gym. It also has um, honors the textile history with Hyperlite um, that makes camping gear, like high test camping and hiking gear, <laughs> and uh, Angel Rocks that Very makes. Popular amongst hikers. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so Angel Rocks also designs and makes clothing that they sell at their shop here called Sugar. Um, so it's it's a nod to what originally was taking place in these mills with these two industries. And so we're going to turn down here. At this point, we turned into the mill campus itself. And though we were totally allowed to be there, it definitely still felt like we were walking into a work site as we passed through the tall wire fencing. Making our way towards the river, and you'll be able to hear it pretty soon, We were dwarfed by the mill buildings. The few passers-by that we saw just gave us some curious glances, but then went on their way. The nice thing, too, is if anybody questions us, I'll just tell them who I am. Yeah. (laughs) You can just say, excuse me, I'm fancy. Very important. We're on a very important interview right now. Walking through the mill buildings, too, they have these awesome like fire rated giant doors that take a lot of effort to open and close um, but were used to prevent fire spreading throughout the mill building. And the interesting thing too about the way the mills were constructed is it's, it's definitely a campus or what we would call a campus today. But it's really a maze <laughs> to get through them, the buildings themselves, and in between the buildings. And this space back here 
um, hasn't been open to the public for quite some time. So even as a native resident of Biddeford, I had never been back here because I was all gated off, all closed off. Um, but now, because it's a combination of residential and commerce, they've taken the time to open it up and create um, a river walk. So what we're coming down onto now is kind of an amphitheater to look over the falls. Um, so we'll probably not be able to record as we get closer just because the falls are so loud. But we can begin to we can try. And being able to walk back here really shows you the, the purpose and the reason why these mill buildings were built on either side of the river because they were harnessing the power of this rushing water. I've never seen it from this vantage point before. And you can structure that we're looking at here. So what I'm seeing is like this ramp that kind of um, switchbacks up to this other part of the mill and like you said this is like a maze walking through here um, and on the other side we're kind of looking over at these rapids and this massive sort of waterfall this like force of water that's coming out of um, what looks like a dam can you tell us a little bit about what what this achieved and what role this had in the before you yeah. do can I make a guess is that a fish ladder nope <laughs> no. Okay. no, that's just an access way uh, if people need to get down yes. lower. Um, on the other side of this building, they have actually built a fish ladder. So if you take Route 1 north, um, you'll see when you come to the light where Bob's Mini Mart is, like when you're at the light and you look down at the river, they've constructed this natural ramp for the fish to access. But what we're looking at here is the dam that was constructed to harness the power of the water and also to help the flow of the water over the natural landscape. And what has always been fascinating to me is seeing these granite blocks and cement walls that the properties are built up on. Um, and I mean, you can, I know there was rain last night, but you can see the moisture on the concrete from the mist. But during the spring, when there's snow melt and heavy rains, this, this water gets pretty high. Um, and I don't think you can see it from here, but if you're on that footbridge just up from us or downstream from us, um, you can actually see moats in the lower levels of the buildings and that's because the raw material was brought to the top and as it went down each floor the processes were happening to make it into fabric and then it went back out underneath the moat and the um, canal system to be shipped out either on the river or by train. Their advantage they didn't just I mean obviously there is a lot of industry happening they're building a, a very industrial complex around but they're also using the river to their advantage yeah, that that is they're harnessing the power they're harnessing the um, ability to ship and travel um, through the river because this river leads right out to the Atlantic so it was a straight shot then down to Boston and from Boston, that was the heart of all of trade for northern New England and really most of America or the colonies at, at the time where we're seeing a lot of this activity happen. And the statistic that I looked up last night, so in 1845, the city's population was 2,574. Okay. 
by 1900, the population was 16,145. And at that time, three out of five people were French Canadian. And 80% of those births that were happening at that time were to Franco families. So that really is an indicative statistic as to how rapidly there was an influx of immigrants and French Canadians settling here, making this their home, reproducing. And they, I have a small French family, but most French families reproduce in droves. La revanche de berceau, they call it. La revanche de berceau, so yeah. berceau meaning a cradle. Yeah. Revenge of the cradle. <laughs> yeah, be, um, because uh, the French, uh, the Franco's, the large population was right. how they part of how they combated the discrimination. Yep. Right. Yep. And that's also the story of your family as well, right, Maureen? In, in the Western? Uh, you're, well, you're not my immediate family. No. My extended family is big. Okay. No. And what is, uh, just to ask now, the dam, it's, it's still clearly a very functional dam. There's water yeah. roaring out of that. What's the use now? Is there, are they harnessing I, I'm not sure if that building that we're looking at is still harnessing it for hydropower. Um, but I also just think that that structure is, it's not like it can really go anywhere. You know? <laughs> Can't really do anything with it. And it's so central. It feels like we're in the heart of the city right now. The mill is the heart of the city. And as we're looking upstream, the buildings with the black trim around the windows, those are all residential and coming down this building as well, all residential. And as we look downstream, also, these are all apartments that people are residing in and really capitalizing over the beauty of this river that once was a function of commerce to be able to harness the power, use it as a mechanism for travel, now is an appealing feature for residents. What is your view, your opinion, your thoughts on the way that this revitalization is taking shape? And I'm wondering, because there's, there's so much good coming of this revitalization in, um, in, in Biddeford, in Lewiston, in, in Portland, but I'm wondering um, kind of what your view is, because it does seem, I guess, personally a little bittersweet to me. And I'm wondering if that, if you feel the same way about Biddeford, what, what are your feelings about that? It definitely is a little bittersweet to see some of the kind of old school charm that doesn't really exist anymore. Um, I used to work at Riley's Bakery and there was this group of men that would be in there at 6 a.m. every morning talking half French, half English, because that's that's what you do. Um, And that group has slowly gotten smaller over the years. Um, You don't hear French in the aisles at Hannaford anymore. Um, And that's a charm that I do miss. And I think Biddeford is really at a tipping point here where some decisions need to be made about development so that we're not wholly gentrifying the area and pushing people out um, because some of that is already happening that people we're coming to Biddeford to live because the Portland rent was too expensive. And now the Biddeford rent, the I saw yesterday, the, at the average is, I believe, like around $12.50, which seems kind of low, actually. Um, so there's, there's definitely a, a, a work at foot to try and preserve some affordable housing for folks. Um, try and mindfully build up um, commerce and properties that haven't yet been built. The one thing that I have appreciated about the redevelopment of these mills is the first one was purchased and work started in 2004. So we're almost almost at the 20-year mark of when that first was a concept to renovate the building for business and for living. 
And it's definitely been a slow, mindful progression of renovating these properties. And part of that is a little bit forced hand because the property owners are using tax credits, historic tax credits. So that process kind of pumps the brakes a little bit because it's a long process. There's a lot that goes into making sure um, these the buildings are preserved. Like if you look at um, like the building behind us, you look at those windows versus the building close to us, um, you can see that the nature of the windows are being preserved. And when we walk past the Lincoln Mill, same thing. Yeah, there are new windows in there, but they look like what they did, just new. And all of the things that come with new windows, like heat efficiency and all of that, um, that aspect of it I really appreciate because I would hate to see these buildings torn down and cookie cutter buildings built back up. We made our way away from the river and out of the mill complex and began our trek back to Main Street towards MacArthur Library for our visit with Renee. The library itself is a beautiful brick turn-of-the-century building right across the street from Elements. Renee was ready and waiting for us. And in case you hadn't noticed, we did lose Libby along the way. She is a very busy woman. So we are very excited to be here at the MacArthur Library in Biddeford with our guide, Renee. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Um, I'm Renee Burkett. I am the Special Collections Librarian here at MacArthur Library. Um, I've been here since 2007, and um, I'm the first archivist to actually work here at, the, at this library. So well, when I started working here, it was a very different very different animal uh, collection-wise. It was kind of like a disaster. but um, And it's still not perfect. There's still always work to do, but it's Define <laughs> disaster. What has changed? Um, so, for example, when I started here, all the archival stuff were, I think we figured out it was in like eight different locations around the building. Um, and so we've gotten it down to three which is pretty good considering um because there's not a lot of space here and you'll see that like the our main the main storage space is a uh, condensed shelving that um, one of my former directors championed us having put in and that really helped to be able to kind of bring everything together but for many years it was just all over the place it was just in corners and nooks and crannies and like wherever they could kind of stick it and um so, so it's, it's, it's at least easier to find things now. And things are in the catalog and we have a lot of, like you can access it much, much easier than um, in the past. Gotcha. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, so come, come on in so you guys can kind of. After um, a tour of the building, we set up in front of a table full of photos and documents that Renee had pulled for us. One of the big personalities represented in these materials was a man named Pierre Pinchot. Can you tell us a little bit? We've seen the flyers for Pinchot. Can you tell us a little bit about who he was? So we've got Pierre Pinchot, who um, he was like, I think, I think he's like our second most famous Franco um, settler, yeah. like be, besides Chevenel, like everyone knows that name, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Um, he came down from Canada when he was a teenager um, and was a gifted musician. And he and his entire family were gifted musicians. And so he, he lived here. He started this band. The band, I think, existed through the 80s or 90s. So um, it was like over 100 years this band existed. And they were kind of like the local band they were they yeah. appeared everywhere they were in all the parades and um if uh music was seemed like such a big thing here um that and you know people would would work in the mills or whatever and like in their spare time they would they would like be part of these like bands um and there were a lot of them there was Pancho's band there were 
like the different drum and bugle corps and like every, like it seemed like every organization had like a musical arm. We noticed this in the when we were looking at the Lewiston city directories mm-hmm. for our mapping Franco Lewiston episode yeah. that the the lists of music teachers first of all about 75 80% of the names were Franco yeah. and there were also so many of them yeah. so many of them. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing and I mean especially you notice it here where um we have so many like musical um based collections or or people but yeah like it was such a huge part just like a but like it wasn't it was like just like a normal part of everyday life like this whole like like this the musical um the people just did it and and it was just like you know it wasn't extraordinary it wasn't you know, as part of a resume, it was just something people did for fun. And, and it was just, just a, a really popular um, thing that people did. So yeah, Painter's Band is just another part of that, this kind of very long, yeah, because I think, yeah, 1873 um, was when he started it. I think he came here in the 1860s, maybe. Um, and uh, we have a lot of pictures of him. Um, and he was also active in, in theater and there was a huge, and that's the collection that I brought out for, for you guys to take a look at if you'd like, is, um, the Franco theater collection that we have here, which was a huge, uh, like many, many years. There was a very active, like Franco, um, theater in, in the area. Um, they would play all over the state. And, but what's interesting to me is when you, it, like the music thing, it was like people, they didn't make a big deal about it. Um, you know, you, you would go and you would read the, an obituary for one of these fellows who was like a huge star. Like he starred in every single play and you read his obituary and it doesn't say anything about it was like, oh, he worked, he, you know, worked in the mills for 50 years and had a family and, and stuff. But like it doesn't mention anything about, um, you know, being like this huge kind of theater rock star mm-hmm. and, and starring in all these plays. And, and um, you know, it's it's almost like it was just another, you know, just just what they did, like not a big deal. You know, they it was just, you know, oh, let's do all these plays and and um, put on these great productions. And they were all, you know, in French and. Um, and they were huge. You see them in the in the Franco paper, which we have, La Justice, um, and and you know they were advertised. They were always going on, and um, but there, but it just it wasn't. It, I don't know. It just always seems funny to me, you know, to that they weren't you know tooting their own horns. I mean, maybe you'd see it about like oh he you know played in Pancho's band for but um but the the theater ones were always surprised me like because there were very few that kind of um made a big deal about it which was can we take a look yeah oh yeah 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 yeah. to Renee's point too I don't know Maureen I don't know if Maureen would echo this with her her connections and ancestors but there's a humbleness I think to the Franco people um they don't really I think talking about themselves is hard and they really were just like hard workers and that's what they did and they didn't need any accolades or any um, appreciation. I don't know if that's something that you... I would would second that. Uh, My parents would always brag about my brother's accomplishments and mine more than their... They would hardly mention their own. I'm also just going to take a note, having known Maureen for some months, that you're probably one of the more humble people that I know. <laughs> Anna and I are always like, Maureen, needs, Maureen has all of these talents, like the poetry, the spoken word stuff. So and I'll I, just, to put you on the spot, Maureen. <laughs> and I definitely, um, I found that out too. And there were a lot of people who were interested in the work I was doing in writing my book, but not a lot of people who wanted to talk to me oh. firsthand about their experience. Um 
which was sad because these are some great stories that these people have. And I know I've heard them, but they've, I haven't been able to get them like on record for interviews for the book. They just didn't think it was interesting enough. You know, they, they would show up, work, and go home and live their lives and raise their families. And um, they didn't think there was anything remarkable about that, even though this city is built on their backs of, of that hard work. And um, there, there have definitely been times where I've heard stories and thought to myself, I never knew that. Or, um, you know, I hear the story and then I remark, like, that's amazing. But there's that humble response again, be like, oh, it's nothing, you know, so... Here are a couple, um, these are, so these are like the publicity shots for the plays and then some programs. And these are a couple of my favorite um, Franco um, artists. So this fellow right here, this is um, JJ Salvis. What a great photo, that top one. It's an amazing collection, honestly. Like, um, this is... Um, and apologies for my French. So it's Frère Esor, um, and so 1917. <laughs> Brother and sister. At the Salle de l'Opera. And I love, so this, we'll post these photos on the blog, but this, this top one, it's, it's such a, it is such a scene. There's this oh, yeah. dramatic, this woman is clutching to this man who is gesticulating dramatically and looking up to the heavens. There's someone dead next to them and someone else over the body yelling something. Um, these photos are fantastic. Looks like there's some kind of duel happening in the one below it. Beautiful. So this was from the 21st of November, 1917. What is today the city theater was then the opera house. Yes, yeah, so these are just, I mean, these wonderful folks just putting on all these amazing plays. And um, and it, we're really lucky. We're really, we're so very lucky to have this here. Um, and we actually, I think, I think this material came to the library in the 1960s. Because um, we do have photographs of... Uh, Mr. Salvas and his wife and um, another couple who are here in the library with all of this material on display. So, um, and that was like in the middle, mid-60s. The quality of the images are really impressive to see, um, especially this one from Gypsy Dance that's from 1896. Um, but when we were in the map library, Libby pointed out um, there was a photographer even on the mill campus. Uh, so that clearly is a, another aspect of the culture that was really popular as having documenting these in such nice photos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Biddeford is, I mean, we're definitely have an embarrassment of riches in terms of photograph um, collections just because of the... Um, the, the different, the elite studio, which was on Main Street, which we ended up with um, a large portion of their negatives. So um, is there anything else that you'd like to mention to folks who might want to come here and learn about uh, Franco-American culture and heritage? Um, I can definitely tell you um, the newspapers, and Emma used them a lot. Um, the newspapers are some of my very favorite resources, especially the um, like the mid 20th century um, ones, uh, even early 20th century. There's so much just like day to day information. Um, you know, so and so went to Waterboro. Um, so-and-so just got back from Lewiston, um, you know, where, where people went, like, you know, where they were traveling, what they were doing. I mean, those really like little day-to-day things that, you know, we share on social media now were in, in the, new, the newspaper. And, um, and we have such a nice collection 
of the local newspapers, both in English and French. Um, and uh, for your for your listeners, um, the French paper, La Justesse de Biddeford, is is completely digitized. So that is a hundred percent online. So mm-hmm. you can so anyone can access those, and they're on the library's website, which means. Um, it's free for you to use. It's free for you to clip and download and share. Um, and so all of that is is searchable online for anyone to use. Um, so if people are very far away, they can still use the, that material. And then um, all of our very earliest papers are digitized up to this point. Um, and we do more every year. Uh, like the, the material for this year is actually out right now, being done. Um, so at, in the next couple of months, we should have um, more of the 1920s, which is kind of what we're up to. Um, and those newspapers, those are just, those are my go-to. Those are my very favorite um, resources for searching for people. And specifically for Franco people, just so you, to realize that um, the Franco names were often butchered <laughs> quite a bit. So... If you're trying to look someone up and you don't find them, um, try and spell their names some creative ways and they might pop up, um, especially in the, in the English language newspapers. Um, they would kind of, kind of spell, spell names however they felt like that day. So, so that's just a, a tip for, for me, a pro tip for your listeners. Um, but those research, the newspapers are just, they're my favorite and, and I want everyone to use them because that's why we put them out there for you. <laughs> and I have one last question before we wrap up. I know we all have to get back to our day jobs. I want to do this all day. Um, you have Franco heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about your family and, and that history in Maine? Are you from Biddeford? Sure. Um, actually, so my Franco heritage is one of the the weirdo ones. Um, so my grandpa came from St. Camille and Watton area when he was 19. And I know this because I researched it after he passed away because um, my grandpa never spoke French. And I actually didn't know that um, my my maiden name is Pilon. And I actually didn't know that that was a French name until I was a grown up. Um, <laughs> so, so more common than you might think. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, and so, uh, I really didn't know anything about, um, my Frenchness at all until I was an adult and started piecing those things together. Uh, like, um, like my grandpa always ate blood sausage and nobody else ate it. And I, and I was like, oh, that's like a thing that he brought from, you know, his youth or, you know, pork pies. Um, but of course we don't call them, we just called them pork pies cause n- we never spoke French. Um, and, uh, my grandfather married my grandmother who was not French and, um, uh, his family didn't like that very much. Um, so we, we, I didn't really know any French people, um, until I was a grown up. Um, and have kind of uh, learned more about it on my own and embraced it as much as um, as I as you would because it's awesome. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that's like my kind of my strange like Franco journey. Um, but yeah, my my grandpa was a, a immigrant and a naturalized U.S. citizen from Canada and. I'm very proud of him for that. So it must be really neat to be looking at these documents and be working here and being able to promote and preserve that history. Yeah, it's and that's why it's extra special to me because like I see it from that side where oh, like we we didn't live like around other French people. We didn't live in a Franco um community at all. Like I I never saw that as like I had no idea that that was like part of my heritage. And so like, it's really special to me to be here and like learn about it and like make it accessible and, and get it out there so that people can, can use it and stuff like that. And um, I know Emma has something to say too, I'm sorry, but just quickly, when did your grandpa come? Um, so he came down when he was 19. So I think that was 1931 or so. Um, he and he and my 
well, no, it must have been the mid-1930s. And actually, there, his whole family kind of came down. They came down to the Springvale, Sanford area, um, and they worked in the mills down there. And um, I was actually able to find the house that they lived in using the city directories for that area and um, visited that. And so they, they all lived down there. My grandpa worked as a lumberjack and in a factory, and um, he was a boxer, and he was about five feet tall um, and all muscle <laughs> um, and extremely handsome. And I can see why my Grammy fell in love with him at Old Orchard Beach, which I think is where they This walk through Biddeford with Emma and our visit to the MacArthur Library helped to put the work we do at the Franco-American Collection into perspective. There are so many commonalities between these Franco cities, each with their own unique cast of characters and landmarks. The stories that Emma and Renee shared with us about their work, their heritage, and their upbringing helped add another dimension to what we see of Biddeford on a map. And isn't that how it always plays out? Our mental image of a place always expands when we have those kinds of stories to tell. Please keep sharing yours with us. We love hearing them. Music for Franco-American Pathways was composed and performed by Robert Sylvain and is available for purchase at his website, robertsylvain.com. Special thanks to Dr. Libby Bischoff at the Osher Map Library and Smith Center for Cartographic Education, Emma Boutillette, and Renee Burkett for making our mapping of Franco-Biddeford possible. All editing and production for this episode was done at WMPG, USM's community radio. Merci, et à la prochaine. Sur le rivage, le verbe cache dans son langage, je veux m'appeler. Sur le rivage, le verbe cache dans son langage, je veux m'appeler. Des souffles de ton moi-même que tu je t'aime, veux-tu m'aimer? Veux-tu, veux-tu que tu je t'aime, veux-tu m'aimer?